Thank you, Blake. I'll get out of your way now. That's all right. You're doing great. Hey, good morning, everybody. What is it? One more announcement. What is it? Did everybody hear that okay? Okay, cool. We had those. We inserted them in the bulletin last week uh, and forgot to mention it. Uh, and then he was supposed to mention it this week. That's all right. That's all good. So uh, please avail yourself of that if you would like. So I did some research. No, that sounds ridiculous. It, it wasn't really research. It's not like in-depth or anything. I actually opened Wikipedia and <laughs> and counted uh but it sounds cooler if I say I did some research. But the, uh, uh, over the last 10 years, in, in, in I, I kept my search for the last 10 years, I counted no less than 127 movies about the end of the world that were released. That averages out to 12 a year, which, of course, is like averaged out to once a month. So 12 movies a year about the end of the world. And granted, I know that we have a lot more movies. The whole movie industry has grown exponentially, and we have a lot more options for how they're uh, transferred to people and stuff. But still, I don't think they'd be making this many movies about the end of the world if it weren't a popular subject, if it weren't you know making money for them in, in some way. There's something about, I was puzzling about that, there's something about our, our mortality, I believe, that just keeps nagging us about the end. In our society, we don't like talking about the end. You know, you're, let's make some funeral preparations while you're in your 30s. Uh, no, I don't think so. But let's talk about the end of the world. Yeah, man! We're all about that because it's a little more abstracted uh, than, than really dealing with or confronting the reality of our mortality. Uh, sounds like a poem. But uh, uh, the thing is, the church really isn't, that much different. We've got a long history of fascination with the subject of the end of the world. And it's something we're going to consider today because Jesus is going to talk about it uh, to a degree. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd like to follow along, you'll want to find your way to Luke chapter 17, please. Now, last week, we read the account of 10 lepers that Jesus had healed, and Janelle did an excellent job of exegeting that passage for us. Today we're going to read a section that sort of stands on its own. Uh, it, it abruptly uh, changes the subjects here. Uh, Jesus is going to be asked a question about the timing of God's kingdom, and he's going to respond quite cryptically, but in a way that's meant to provide uh, assurances and hope to his followers uh, when it comes to God's mysterious and inbreaking kingdom, when it comes to uh, this storyline of the planet Earth. There's no doubt that the church throughout our long history has had a keen interest in trying to determine when the world is going to end. Uh, in my lifetime alone, I was born in 1961, again, my deep research, I went and counted, but... Uh, uh, there were no less than 20 failed predictions about the return of Christ, the date of it uh, being predicted, 20 of them in my lifetime. Um, and, and, of course, none of them happened. But failure is not a deterrent here to the, uh, these predictions. They're still coming. 
The current dates being offered by differing peoples and, and groups are April 8th. You just want to mark these down, I suppose. April 8th, 2024, because a, a solar eclipse is happening or, or something. Uh, we've also got 2025, if that doesn't work, which it won't. 2025, 2029, that's another one. And this one, 2057 is predicted by a guy who says he has scientific, scientifically proven the existence of God. So that's cool. Um, to say that this kind of predictive intrigue is an obsession for some people in the church would actually be an understatement. There's full-on cottage industries that are all about trying to predict when the end will come, what things we're supposed to be looking at. There's a Bible in one hand, a newspaper in the other, and everybody's trying to push them together. Uh, But we've seen over and over again, and I am not kidding, guys. I've been a Christian the majority of my life. I have seen over and over again how fruitless this sort of behavior and endeavor is, and in some cases, downright harmful, actually problematic. And as I said, it hasn't stopped us yet. I don't know what will. Why do we seem to have this this predilection for predictions as the church? I would say, you know, for one thing, the nature of this message that we carry, the Bible does indicate a future conclusion to this story of the human race, a time when this broken world may return to being formless and without void so it can be remade new uh, and redeemed and restored. Uh, And so when the Bible does give us those kinds of indications, it just naturally begs the question, well, when? Like, when is this going to happen? And how is this going to happen? And what what are we looking for? Ancient Israel was no different. Ancient Israel had, a, had long been waiting for what the prophets called the day of the Lord, a time when Israel's enemies would finally be subdued and defeated and God would restore the world to the paradise conditions of Eden. That was what they were anticipating Messiah was going to do when he showed up. When he showed up, it would be the day of the Lord and everything would be set right. That's what they were looking for. And it's that long anticipation that sets the stage for the section that we're going to read this morning. The question of when. When is this going to happen? So we're going to jump into the text and see what we glean from this. If you're there in Luke chapter 17, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting today in verse 20. It says, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. All right, so as I said, there's a backstory to this question that the Pharisees are asking here. It's very important that we keep this in, in its proper context and that we not view this through the lens of 2,000 years of Christian theology or a hundred years of evangelical theology or evangelical thought. The Pharisees, when they're asking this question, are not asking about the rapture or the Antichrist or anything like that. They believed that when Messiah came, he would rid Israel of her enemies and restore purity to the temple and the priesthood and establish Israel as a sovereign nation who would then rule the rest of the world. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were expecting. There was a buzz that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah everybody's waiting for. And so they're asking, in essence, if you're the Messiah, 
then where is God's kingdom? If you're the Messiah, where are the troops? And, and you know, why isn't Rome being overthrown right now? And when can we expect these things to start happening, Jesus? And Jesus' response exposes a misunderstanding on their part. And it's a misunderstanding that I believe persists largely to this day. They were looking for a specific identifiable event that would result in this geographic national kingdom. But Jesus is disabusing them of that notion, pointing out that God's kingdom is already established and most don't even notice it, don't even realize that it's happening. The Pharisees' expectations needed to be changed. They, they weren't going to be able to be able to point over here to this group and say, oh, the kingdom of God is here, or announce that you know they've identified God's kingdom at last. It's over here in this place. And the reason he's saying that sort of thing here or there is because that was happening in Jesus' day. The Essenes, a, a sect out of Israel, were out in the wilderness claiming that the kingdom of God was being birthed through them and their movement out there. They had Herod to the north who was claiming to be the the king of the Jews and who was going to establish the kingdom of God, build it for the Jewish people. They had Rome, who were following Augustus Caesar, who claimed to be the son of God, the savior of the world, and that the kingdom of the gods was going to be established on earth through him. They had all these different claims and voices going on at that time, and Jesus is saying it's not going to happen that way. The kingdom is already among you. Jesus' point is that God's healing and benevolent reign was and is present in his presence. God's kingdom isn't a happening whose time can be calculated by looking for signs and precursors. Doing that, he's saying, is a waste of energy. God's kingdom is not going to go down that way. Not like that. Not like what their expectations were. Anywhere that hearts have been surrendered to God's rule, everywhere where people have claimed that Jesus Christ is king, that's where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is there. Or we could say it's here in this room. The reason that we're gathered here on a Sunday morning, we get out of bed, we come in here, sit in a room on a beautiful day. We do that because we're here supporting each other in our mutual claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king. And that means the kingdom of God is here, right here, right now, because the kingdom of God is a a group of people. It's the hearts of people who have identified that their king is Jesus. And he will make all things right. God's kingdom is not and will not be affiliated with any specific nation or nationality. And and this was a huge shift, not just for the ancient world, but a huge shift for Israel, who had always assumed that God's kingdom would be centered on their nation. They always believed Israel was the kingdom of God. That's the way that was going to work. But in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he commissions his disciples to go out with the good news of this kingdom, he sends them out to Judea and to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the world. That's where the kingdom of God is. There is no one nation that now represents God's kingdom. God's kingdom overlaps all nations, and his kingdom are the people who have committed their hearts and their lives to him. So that is his first point. 
This is the first thing that he wants to get across. To me, that means it's the most important. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is already present as people surrender to Christ as king. That's what we need to remember about the kingdom of God. Let's not try to fixate on geography or anything like that. Let's remember it's about a people surrendered to the king. But the view does expand. He goes on from there. It's, that's his first major point. But, but we'll keep reading here, verse 22. And he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you long to see the day when the Son of Man returns, but you won't see it. People will tell you, Look, there's the Son of Man. Uh, or, hey, he, he, he's here. Don't go out and follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. But first, this is the part we seem to kind of just skip over, first, the Son of Man must suffer terribly and be rejected by this generation. So at this point, Jesus is looking to the future. He's making his first point. The first point is God's kingdom is, has invaded this world. It's already advancing. As soon as Jesus showed up on the scene, God's kingdom is here and at work right now. But then he, he looks to the future. He does expand this farther. And I can't help but wonder what his disciples must have been thinking when he says there will be a time when you'll long to see the Son of Man, talking, referring to himself, but you won't see him. And he's standing right there in front of them. It's kind of like, what, are you not here? What, what are you saying in this? Uh, it's significant that he's using this title, Son of Man. It comes from Daniel 7, which was always read as a prediction of Messiah's appearance. The Son of Man will rise on the clouds to be seated at the right hand of the, of the Almighty. The, and Jesus is clearly applying that title to himself. So he's, he's declaring quite openly to his disciples here that he is Messiah by saying that. Uh, and he's obviously forecasting a time, and this is so intriguing. This is where I'm saying it's kind of cryptic. He's forecasting a time when he's not present with his followers the way he was then, revealing instead that a, a powerful display of his rule is still to come in, in some unknown future date. And... Uh, Given the history of the church, I'm kind of getting into the tunes. Given the history of the church, it's no big deal. That happens. We've all got phones. It's no big deal. Uh, given the history of the church, it's fascinating that he warns them, and, and by extension then is warning us, not to follow people who claim special insight about where and when his kingdom is coming. Isn't it amazing? I mean, he says it explicitly. Uh, wouldn't it be something if we actually listened to him on that? And, uh, but, but it's amazing. It's like every time these things happen, there are huge swaths of people that, that follow. It's like Jesus says, hey, don't listen to these guys that say that they know what's going on and where I'm going to be. And we're like, yeah, yeah, right, right. And then somebody comes up and says, hey, I know when he's coming back. And we're like, oh, really? <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, what we put together here is that God's kingdom is something that appears in stages. That's the best way we can kind of put that together. It's here. It's presently at work in, uh, in the work of Christ through his followers on the earth today. But there's also a fullness, an authoritative manifestation of his rule over earth that is still to come somewhere in the future. And the only precursor to that that he gives us in this section is that Jesus will be rejected and suffer, which is really an important aspect of this. Because So there's the order. The, the, those are the stages that he describes. There's a sacrificial suffering and rejection 
uh, by the status quo of the king. And then the king rules in some unseen way. But one day his kingly rule will be fully revealed and it will be unmistakable and it will be glorious. No mystery about it at that point. That's the gist of what he's saying. But I think what's really important, I think the point that he's trying to make is about the present. He's trying to encourage his disciples about about what they're about to experience. But I believe it's also a message to us about reminding us of, of how this is all going down, that God's kingdom presently advances through self-sacrificial love. Suffering precedes the glory. This is the Christ way. This is how the kingdom advances presently in our world, through self-sacrificial Love. We're not advancing Christ's cause when we get aggressive and in the face of those who don't believe or who reject whatever truth we may hold to or morals that we may have. We're not defending the faith if we threaten to take up arms to fight for our rights to practice our faith. That is not the way God's kingdom advances in this world. Every time the church, and all you got to do is just a short, <laughs> I was going to say a short Wikipedia search, but no, more than that. You just do a short look into church history, and you will find that every time the church has dabbled in that sort of behavior of taking up arms and doing that, it's always been disastrous, always been disastrous, oftentimes becoming just as evil as the evil they set out to correct. He's clearly pointing to a radical departure from the way that the kingdoms of this world operate and how they advance. See, we tend to focus on the the glorious arrival, the lightning flashing from the east to west, and miss this forecast of rejection, which I believe is really the main point. The hope of this glorious arrival is what fuels the the faithful to to continue on in self-sacrificial love, in the face of rejection, in the face of oppression, in the face of resistance to all of those things. That's why Paul says the suffering of these present times isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that's to come. But he's still talking about the suffering of this present time because that's the way the kingdom moves forward through this self-sacrificial love. The hope that that there is at the end of this journey encourages us to continue taking up our cross to follow him because that's what Jesus said we would do to follow him, to be his disciple, to continue on this mission that he's put us on. We don't, we don't take up arms. We take up a cross and a cross has only one purpose. That is to pin us down and to hold us still until God has completed what he, what he's going to do. It's quiet, so we'll move on. Jesus goes on to expound on this idea, verse 26. When the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat and the flood came and destroyed them all. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be business as usual right up to the day 
when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof mustn't go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. If you let your life go, you'll save it. That might, two people, that night two people will be asleep in one bed and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. All right, again, mysterious, cryptic uh, language. He goes back to the Old Testament narrative to highlight two accounts of cataclysmic ends, the the great flood and the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, It's interesting that he uses these two examples because there were other cataclysmic ends in the Old Testament. I mean, we had the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon. Those were pretty significant and epic uh, uh, situations. Some could say that the flood uh, uh, and and the the fire in Sodom were examples of divine retribution. Uh, You know, the conquering of Israel and Jerusalem were framed as divine judgment as well. Certainly these two are examples of supernatural cataclysms. And that may be part of the point, things that are outside the normal scope of armies and, and the political machinations. And, and how the end came as life was going on as usual may be one of the things that he's trying to highlight because certainly nothing was life as usual before the destruction of the, the two Israeli cities. But there's something else about these two examples that just jumps out to me that he refers to it as the time of Noah and the time of Lot, not the time of the flood or the time of uh, Sodom's destruction. So in, in that case, we have... These single, these individuals, or we could say families who rejected the patterns of the world around them and remained faithful to God. Those were their times. And that's why Jesus connects it to Lot's wife and being willing to get, let go of life in order to, to find life, to let go of life here, uh, in order to find life somewhere or in someone else. Now Jesus, doesn't point to specific signs and signals that we're to be looking for that indicate that God's kingdom is about to appear in its final glory. Instead, he points out that life goes on as usual. How interesting is that? I mean, I know you can't make a cottage industry out of that because, you know, every day you wake up, oh, there it is, signs of the end. (laughs) Why, what happened? Nothing, I mean, just everything, you know. Uh, uh, but, But instead, it's life as usual, except, and this is what's significant, except that you have this minority of people who are going a different way. You've got Lot and you've got Noah. And that seems to be what Jesus is pointing to, that the arrival of God's kingdom is signaled by a counterculture people. So if we're looking for signs, if we're interested in finding signs of God's inbreaking kingdom, then I would suggest we need to look in the mirror and evaluate how we understand our lives and our place as we follow Jesus, how we understand our place in this world as we follow Jesus and are surrendered to his kingdom. Do we follow whatever moral trends that the culture embraces or promotes? Or do we look to Christ's standards as to how it is that we live and the choices that we make? Do we take up the attitudes of outrage and offense that seem to characterize our world right now? Or do we live as peacemakers out of our faith in Christ? Do motivations of greed or self-will or lust 
guide us through our activities or our choices as it does for this broken world? Or do we live in service to others, seeking to humanize others, laying down our lives for others as Jesus did? We are meant to be signs of God's kingdom, just like Noah was a sign, just like Lot was a sign. We're living in the world in such a way that it's forecasting a better world yet to come. Living in this world in a way that's actually reflecting the hope we have of something better that's on the horizon. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, how attached to this world's system am I? How much of my sense of value or worth as a person, is connected to the value system of the society in which I find myself. If all of my money were gone tomorrow, could I still see myself as very valuable in the eyes of God? If my political party didn't make it, can I still see myself as one who is under the control of the king who is in control of it all? How much am I allowing the systems of this world to inform me about my value or who I am. God's calling his church to be signs of something else. Am I willing to let go of my life, as Jesus says here? In other words, my rights, my dignity, in order to remain faithful to God and the values of his kingdom. Am I willing to lay that down for others? Those are the signs of something else that's on the horizon. And honestly, that's the only sign of God's kingdom that that really matters to any of us individually. Am I reflecting the good news of God's kingdom into this broken world? Or am I just part of the echo chamber that's, that's spewing the static and the rage? The section concludes with Jesus describing people in bed, one taken and the other left, two grinding at a meal, mill, one taken and one left. Back in 1970, Larry Norman wrote a song that he used these words in the, in the lyrics describing the rapture and, you know, wishing everybody had been ready. Remember that song? Wish they stayed all. Anybody go back those days? You're not old enough. How in the world? Oh, DC Talk did do a version, didn't they? So... If you were in the 70s or the 90s, because they kind of looped over each other, I think, a little bit. Uh, And this is where we get the very terminology about being left behind. You know, the book series, Left Behind, uh, where it's assumed that this is the description of the rapture, where one person is taken up to heaven supernaturally and the other is left to face a world in tribulation. Here's the thing. You know how I did a message called Rob Bruins Christmas for everyone? And... This is Rob Ruins the rapture for everyone. And what I mean by that is, look, look, no matter what a person's view is on the doctrine of the rapture, we need to be clear that Jesus is not saying that in, in this section. In this part here, when he's describing one taken and one left, it's the opposite of the way that we've been understanding that in that context. The context is coming cataclysm. One is taken or swept away in the floods of the judgment or the fire that comes down. And the one left behind is escaping it. That's the, the context. It's, you know, the idea that's being communicated here, especially using Noah and Lot. N- you know, Noah and Lot remained. Everybody else is taken uh, away. 
The point is, when this happens, though, this is what he's trying to get across. When this happens, it will divide people who up until that time were virtually indistinguishable from the other person from outward appearances. So close in the same bed, so doing the same job, it had you know about the same activities. The only difference clearly was in the heart. One was attached to this world and goes away when this world goes, and the other found life in something better than this broken world. And that's the concept behind it. That ends up being the sign. In other words, we're going to be here in this world, and you've heard this phrase a lot, but not of this world, not sharing in its values and priorities and not suffering its fate when it's gone. Okay, finishing up. Rob, can we get back to grace? Yeah, soon. Uh, but uh, honestly, this is grace if you're, if you're listening properly. Uh, anyway, verse 37. <laughs> the disciples pipe up. This is my favorite. Uh, where will this happen, Lord? I'm pulling on their collars. Uh, the disciples asked. Jesus replied, just as the gathering of vultures shows there's a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. You're dismissed. No. <laughs> In other words, he's saying, you know, this is going to be obvious when it happens. Just like you can look up in the sky and you see buzzards. You're not thinking, oh, buzzard convention. How nice. You, you know right away that there's, there, there's a car. There's something going on down there. And so look, this is a lot to process. I mean, we're kind of quiet here this morning. We're all trying to process what's being said here. And the first disciples, they're just like us. They're trying to process this too. Uh, you know, but this whole speech that Jesus gives started by the Pharisees asking a question, asking when is this going to happen, when the kingdom is going to show up. So they're going to distance themselves from that and ask a different question. And they say, where uh, <laughs> is this going to happen? And we're left to wonder why, where, what? I mean, it starts to get kind of confusing here. Uh, I think the question is significant. I think they were picking up on the warning about the one taken and the one left. This strange, that, that brings it really close to home all of a sudden. And I think they were starting to wonder if he was indicating that even Israel was going to be suffering this judgment. Where will this happen, Jesus? In Rome? In, in Greece somewhere? Could it, could it be Jerusalem who's facing this dire fate? And Jesus doesn't answer directly, but he says, when you see the buzzards circling the sky, you'll know there's a corpse beneath them somewhere, we could say that the arrival of God's kingdom is challenging us to be ever expectant. In other words, we're not going to necessarily get a lot of precursors, but be ready, be looking, be paying attention to to the things that are happening around us that, that, that are clear indicators, not murky, not, could this be, might that be? Intriguingly, the word that's used for vulture is the same word in the Greek for eagle, which was on all of the Roman standards at that time. And here's where I think there are layers to what Jesus is saying. He's describing an end time, but there was another end time that precedes this final one that we have in most of our view. It was the end of Israel's sole place as the people of God in the beginning of the church age, where God's multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic people of God cover the earth. That's 
that was always his goal. And it was a shift. It was a transition from Israel's place as the chosen people, as the sole people of God to something that included all of us. So in essence, the end, when he's saying, they're saying, where is this going to happen? Certainly not here, right, Lord? And he's saying something that is indicating the end coming for Jerusalem. That's how things would start off culminating, you know, later in history with the glorious appearance of the Son of Man at the end of the age. I believe Jesus is forecasting the destruction of Jerusalem here, the eagles of Rome surrounding the city, ready to destroy it. That's why you don't go back in the house when you see this. Don't go back in the house to get your, you know, all your the family safe or anything like that. If you're out in the field, don't even go home. It's time to go because this is about to take place. I believe Jesus has a near view on this for Jerusalem. Now that can expand. And as I said, it may have layers of fulfillment, but we certainly know that this happened back in 70 AD. Uh, And from that time, I believe this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD puts us on this home stretch where now we're waiting for the kingdom, God's kingdom to fully uh, arrive. Now, We've been waiting a long time. We've been on this final stretch for a long time, way longer than anybody expected, but here we are. And the temptation would be to shrug all of this off. Man, it's just been a long time. We've been waiting and waiting. Is he really coming? Is this really real? Did we just make all this stuff up? And I think Jesus is telling us in this, don't give up. Keep keep your eyes peeled because you never know. Because honestly, I mean, you know, you never know. He's describing it with with the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Life went on. Life was just normal life. Things were happening. He told us in Matthew 24, things that would characterize this age were wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and famines and, and pestilences. And yeah, well, we've seen all of that. We've seen all of that for 2,000 years. That's been going on. He said those are birth pangs, which means we're leading up to something else. So don't give up hope. Yeah, it's been a long time, but you know what? God's the one in control of the timing. The main thing is, remember, things are not always as they appear on the surface. So remain faithful. Remain faithful in hope. Remain faithful in hope that the king will do what he said, that he will return one day. He'll make all things right. But in the meantime, we have our mission. We have the mission given to us to take up our cross as Jesus did, to follow him into this world and reflect that hope into this world. So let's take this challenge of heart. Let's not grow weary in doing good. Let's not give up our hope or our expectation of a good ending to this story provided to us by Jesus. Let's keep looking for our redemption. But in the meantime, let's be sure to follow the Jesus way of life the way of self-sacrificial love being living signs of the good kingdom that God has in store. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand up with us, if you will, please. Father, we are grateful to you for your word. And Lord, it challenges us. I don't think anybody here was like super comfortable this morning, Lord, as we read over these things. But but we're faithful to present ourselves before your word. And now I ask you, Lord, to let your word by the work of your spirit have its way in our hearts, mold us and shape us into true Jesus people. 
into people whose highest loyalty and greatest claim of value comes from the love that was shown to us through a Savior on a cross and an empty tomb. Keep our hope alive, Lord Jesus. Encourage us in this way. And we long for and look forward to your kingdom when it's revealed in its fullness. But we thank you that we are part of your kingdom right now, right here and now. Let that that good work of your kingdom expand in our hearts, expand in this place, expand in our community in Bay County, in Florida, and around this world. We pray that you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.